Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Gillian Tett, best-selling writer, journalist and chairman of the US editorial board at the Financial Times. Gillian's one of the few journalists to have a PhD in social anthropology, and it's this anthropological perspective that has played such a key part in her award-winning journalism and inspired her brilliant new book, Anthrovision. Gillian is probably best known for predicting the 2007-2008 financial crisis and wrote about this in her international bestseller, Fool's Gold. In this podcast, she talks about the importance of learning the language of money and power and what New York has taught her about reinvention. A tech glitch meant we had to record on a different platform and the sound quality isn't quite as good as usual, but I hope you'll agree that Gillian's insights make up for it. Welcome to The Art of Work, Gillian. I'm really, really delighted to have you on the podcast and congratulations on the book, which I loved. So what is Anthrovision? Anthrovision is basically the idea that just as we've all learned in our business lives that we can really benefit by importing some of the ideas from say the psychology profession, even if we're not academic psychologists. So too, we can really benefit by using some of the ideas found in the discipline of cultural anthropology, even if we've never studied anthropology, even if we think anthropologists are a bit weird or a bit like wacky versions of Indiana Jones, or even if we know nothing at all about it. There are a lot of ideas in there which we can all deploy in our everyday life. Fascinating. I I found the book really, really fascinating. And as you say, it's quite a leap because a lot of anthropologists do have a reputation for being, you know, slightly sort of hippie-ish and and a bit weird. But the world you've ended up in is uh, very, very different. If you were to bring some anthrovision to your own career, what role would you say work has played in your life? Well, the really powerful thing about anthropology is that it upholds a three-part process or principle that it pays to immerse yourself into the lives and minds of others, um, simply to get empathy for another point of view and see a different way of living. And that's a really valuable thing in a globalized world where we're all exposed to each other, but don't understand each other. But the act of doing that doesn't just teach you about other people, it also teaches you about yourself. Because the Chinese had this wonderful proverb that a fish can't see water. None of us can see the assumptions that shape us unless we jump out of our fishbowl and go and swim with other fish. And when we do that and look back at ourselves and others, we can see not just the important parts of the world that we talk about, obviously, but also the equally important parts of the world that we tend to ignore, what I call social silences. And when I think about my own job as a journalist, most of the best stories I've written have been the times when I've stopped and looked at social silences ask myself, what are we ignoring in the situation? What are people not talking about because it seems boring and geeky and dull or irrelevant, or quite commonly just covered up with acronyms and technical language? And whenever I've done that, I've realized that actually, that's usually where the real story is. Well, you've had some enormous successes on that front, which we'll talk about later, but I also wondered how far your anthrovision had helped you navigate things like office politics, the hierarchies of, uh, well, hierarchies, power, all of that side of of work that's not actually connected with the journalism itself. 
Well, I'll give you a couple of examples in terms of how media groups tend to operate. And I'm with the Financial Times, um, and I think much of this is common to many other parts of the media world, although I think the FT probably tries to address it better than some others. But one of the problems that the FT, or like any media group, is that we tend to create silos or desks or departments that are divided according to a classification system that reflects a world that existed 10 years ago. Um, and as the world changes around us, we don't always reform it quick enough to keep pace. So back in 2004 or five, I was working on the Lex column, the Financial Times, which is a commentary part of the column of the FT. And it's one of the few places where in the FT, you can see all areas of the financial sector on a fairly equal basis, because you're writing about all parts of what finance is called the capital structure, debt, equity, um, foreign exchange, et cetera. But when I was there, I noticed that although the city of London was talking a lot about the equity market, stocks and shares at the time, and I'm talking 2004 and 2005, that was only a very small part of the overall financial system. There was this vast shadowy sort of underbelly of finance um, to do with derivatives and credit products, which everybody was ignoring um, because it seemed technical and geeky and dull and very slow moving. And by everybody, I don't just mean politicians um, I, and most investors, I also mean much of the media. And when I looked around the FT, I realized that although we had high profile stories linked to say banking or the economy or equity markets, we tended to stick the stories about credit and derivatives in the very back of the paper. Um, so with this kind of anthropological vision or this idea of paying attention to social silences, um, I and a group of other people started to try and look much more at this murky silent area. And it turned out to be incredibly useful because of course in 2007, a big crisis began to erupt in this field. And I like to think that if only more people had paid attention to it earlier, there would have been more oversight and the problems might not have gotten so bad. Mm. And you wrote a best-selling book about it, Fool's Gold, but you were denounced from the stage at Davos. Tell us about that and, and how did you feel? Well, at the time that I was writing my stories about the murky underbelly of finance, and I should stress that I originally started doing that not because I thought there was a crisis brewing there as such, but because I thought there was this incredibly interesting area of activity that everyone was ignoring and that people should know about. So I set out to kind of write a travel guide, if you like. Um, but, you know, as a time passed, I became very concerned and I did indeed get quite a lot of pushback. And what happened was that there was a presumption amongst people who were working in the area of credit derivatives that the only people who could or should understand it were people inside that field. Um, they were the experts and had sole control of knowledge. Um, in fact, I remember very clearly someone yanking me into the office and saying to me when I was writing, negative pieces about structured credit, you know, well, why do you keep saying there's also murky and um, opaque? Um, you know, anybody can see anything they want about structured credit on a Bloomberg machine. And I kind of looked at them and said, well, hang on a sec, what about that 99% of people who don't have Bloomberg machines? Mm. Because of course the only people who have Bloomberg machines are financial experts. And there was this real disconnect where you could see this person thinking, well, are we supposed to care about the people without Bloomberg machines? Um, there was a classic pattern where you had a technocratic elite in charge of a body of knowledge, which no one else understood, 
but that everyone else relied on. It's a bit like the medieval priests in the Catholic Church who spoke Latin <laughs> and the congregation didn't, but they needed the blessings. And the key point of this story is that that problem, the fact that you only had a tiny group of people who spoke financial degree, financial Latin, not only hurt the wider society when this creation spun out of control because there was no oversight, it also hurt the priesthood itself because they were so beset with tunnel vision and they were trapped in a silo with no scrutiny that they couldn't see the dangers bubbling in this field either. Mm. And you, you talk about um, a few years later bumping into Alan Greenspan, who ran the Federal Reserve in the run up to the financial crisis. And he said he wanted to read a book on anthropology and you thought it was a sudden burst of humility. But then you realized it was because he wanted to find out about the Greek response to the Eurozone debt crisis, not about his own tribe's failings. What do you think is most effective in getting groups to look at themselves in the way you suggest? Because even after everything that happened, he clearly hadn't changed his view that much. Well, the most effective way to get groups to look at themselves is for them to suffer a humiliating crisis or disaster. Mm. Mm. Uh, that shocks people into thinking, hang on a sec, maybe we're getting things wrong. But sadly, um, you know, having these kind of crises is very damaging. Um, it would be far better if leaders or anybody who aspires to be a leader in a company or in a work situation actually tried to take on board that Chinese principle of jumping out of your fishbowl to understand other fish and then look back at yourself so that you can see the water that you swim in, the cultural assumptions that shape you for good and bad. It'd be far more effective if people could use that fishbowl lesson on a regular basis before you have disasters and crises. And there's all kinds of ways you can adapt these three principles of anthropology in a practical sense. I mean, if you're working in a field that is technologically complex or specialized, where you have professionals operating in guilds, um, it really pays to step back from time to time and say, yes, I'm frantically busy. I've fought very hard for many years of my career to be part of this guild and have the body of knowledge. But what, was, what would happen if I was to jump out um, and go and look at another guild briefly, or go and immerse myself very briefly in another world, and then look back at myself as if I was a Martian. Mm. What would it be about all the pe pe peculiar patterns and rituals that shape my world? And what would I see about what I ignore? Um, because that usually matters enormously. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because obviously journalists do move in lots of different worlds, they have to meet lots of people, interview lots of people, although less than we used to because of, uh, well, because of funding cuts, not least, and 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 uh, the fact that so much is now sort of done virtually and online. But one of the failures that you talk about is a, a similar one, which is the failure of the so-called elite, the metropolitan elite, to foresee or fully understand um, how people felt in relation to Brexit and Trump. And you quote the journalist uh, Selena Zito, who said that Trump supporters took him seriously, but not literally, while the elite took him literally, but not seriously. Do you think that uh, we journalists, that society more generally have learnt from that? And do you see any hope there? Because we have become so polarised on this front, haven't we? Yes, I mean, I tell the story about Brexit um, really as a kind of mea culpa because it doesn't cast me in a good light. 
Um, it really shows that, you know, for parts of my journalistic career, I've remembered to employ my anthropology perspective, the three parts of it. Um, quite often I've forgotten, and that's just human nature. You know, we can all stand up one day and say, I want to get fit. I want to control my anger or anything else. Mm. Um, but the reality is you might do it for a bit and then you forget and backslide. Um, you know, it's never a one-off magic wand that solves the problems. It's a constant lifelong process. And in my case, what happened with Brexit was that I fell into the trap of essentially, you know, believing what my own tribe, and I'm part of the globalized elite who's been pretty rootless in my life. Um, I fell into the trap of assuming that the way that I looked at the world was a way that everyone else looked at the world and should look at the world. Um, you know, one-on-one -on -one anthropology is to try and teach people that just because you see the world one way, you can't assume everyone else does too. Um, so when Brexit happened, I kind of, or rather when the Brexit vote happened, I assumed that because I thought Brexit was a bad idea, everyone else must think that too. And so when it turned out that I'd been incredibly blind, that was a wake-up call. And mm. so I went out during the 2016 Trump campaign and tried to go back to my anthropology roots and just listen, listen, listen without preconception and to think myself into the minds of others. And that showed me several things, you know, firstly, how angry many parts of the population were with Hillary Clinton and how distrustful they were of the whole Clinton elite. But it also showed me that one of the ways that Trump was connecting so powerfully with his voter base was by essentially mocking or challenging the mode of communication that I had taken for granted. Because one of the social silences that sways the media profession is that we tend to assume that having control of language, being educated, knowing how to speak, knowing how to put words on a page in a sequential, supposedly rational order, um, we tend to assume that that gives you an automatic moral right to be superior, gives you power. Um, and the reality is that that idea is so deeply embedded and ingrained in journalists um, that when somebody actually doesn't use words correctly, we tend to laugh as we're dismissing it. When Donald Trump said bigly during the campaign, I was actually on the, the news desk of the FT and everybody, including myself, instinctively laughed. But that's, again, part of social silence. And the reality is that lots of people in America don't have that education and deeply resent people who act superior because they do. And that was something which was helping to increase Donald Trump's support because he knew how to tap into that. And he knew how to tap into it using a performative style of communication, which I often think was borrowed from the wrestling world where he'd been operating for many years on television. Um, and American wrestling matches are all about dramatic displays of manufactured aggression. Um, the wrestlers call each other silly nicknames, um, you know, and that's where Trump got his pattern of calling people, you know, little Mark Rubio or Crooked Hillary. He borrowed it from the wrestling ring. And people who'd been to wrestling matches, which were overwhelmingly non-elite people, sort of almost recognized by default that performative style, that, com that communication style, and saw him through that lens, um, taking him seriously, but not literally, as Selena Zito says. But the problem was that elites like myself were just so blind, we'd never been to wrestling matches, and we didn't understand what was going on. We didn't even know what we didn't know. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought the wrestling match thing was absolutely fascinating in your book, and the and talk of the nicknames because it, it gives you a completely different lens to look at the whole thing through. We all know that Trump is a master communicator, but 
but through breaking the rules that, as you say, that, that we think apply. And that has been a huge wake up call, I think, for, for so many people. Um, talking of wrestling matches, I'm just thinking in the world of journalism has its own rituals, obviously, and newspapers and conference and newspaper offices. Culture varies hugely from one paper to another, but certainly in my own experience of it is it's a pretty macho culture and um, I know the FT now has a has a woman as an editor, but um, at, in, in my time at the Independent, certainly my 10 years there, the, the editor was very, very definitely the boss and whatever he said went and everybody lived in slight fear of him and, you know, him walking, marching around the office. What has your experience been of kind of macho culture at the FT? Well, when I first joined the FT, there were almost no women. In fact, there were virtually no women at all in senior roles. So sometimes people say to me, well, did you have a mentor when you joined the FT? Um, and the answer is no, I didn't really have one because there weren't any women around to really mentor me. Um, and none of the men seemed to be you know, keen to do so in an explicit way. Um, and there was quite, um, I'd say, macho culture, but really it wasn't so much about sort of men throwing their weight around, although that certainly happened. It was also the way we looked and defined, looked at and defined stories. And the wider question is that, you know, journalistic culture in the West tends to define stories as having certain prerequisites within a cultural package. You know, a story needs to be um, driven by a step change or dramatic event. You need to have a named person, a quote, a face, um, a human story, a human you know, character, you know, quotes. And you usually need to have bad news. Um, there's this wonderful phrase, if it bleeds, it leads, mm. uh, which is part of this macho, we're out to, go, you know, to gotcha, to expose, et cetera. And that's an incredibly valuable set of ideas to drive journalism, because without oversight and scrutiny, um, there won't be you know, essentially a world where the media holds the power to account. And without stories about people, it's often hard to communicate because we're hardwired to tell stories through narratives. However, the reality is that not all stories fit that pattern. Um, some stories actually are slow moving and elliptical and there aren't clear cut characters that define it. And there aren't easy quotes or easy numbers. Um, and they aren't necessarily rooted in immediate bad news. And credit derivatives and the story of the financial innovation that drove the 2008 financial crisis, um, that was one of the stories in the latter camp in the years leading up to 2008. And because it didn't really fit the mold of a classic story within the Western cultural sense or media sense, it tended to get ignored. Um, I would argue that many of the stories around what's now called environmental, social and governance doesn't fit into that um, sort of mm. culture either. And so, again, it's often been discounted. You're very interesting on ESG, environmental, social governments in, in the book, which has become increasingly uh, sort of essential, really. I mean, ev practically every business is boasting about its ESG credentials now. And one of the things you say, I mean, I think many of us have had the sense that it's kind of PR essentially, but also a kind of existential need to survive. Can, can you say a bit about how you how you came to realize the importance of ESG and what you think about it now? Well, my own journey to ESG was, as so often, you know, marked by a series of mistakes on my part, which is that when I first had my inbox clogged up with emails about ESG, which was really in about 2017, 2018, um, my first reaction was to kind of feel some irritation and dismiss and discount it. 
Um, in fact, I used to joke that ESG should stand not for environmental, social and governance issues, which it does now, but for eye roll, sneer and groan. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and I assumed it was basically just corporate you know, PR spin. Um, and then a bit like the story of Brexit, I realized actually I was in danger of imposing my own perceptions on everyone else. So I told myself I should go out and listen to what people were talking about and realize that actually, although some of it was indeed spin, the very fact that spin was emerging um, was reflecting a bigger zeitgeist shift. You know, one of the ideas in anthropology is that rituals and rhetoric, even if they seem empty or disconnected from reality, um, they still matter because they show what people's intention and aspirations are. And they show how people would like the world to be. You know, they show the shifting zeitgeist. Um, and in this case, the shifting zeitgeist was that um, companies were realizing that it wasn't enough just to make profit. They needed to talk about purpose too. Um, financiers were realizing that they had to not just think about, you know, the purpose around their investments, but also show how and why they were making returns and what the impact and consequences were on the world. Um, and you had the public sector, which was realizing that it was running out of money to promote its reforms. Um, so you needed to harness the energy and cash, if you like, of the private sphere. And that was you know, impacting how people were talking about the E, the S and the G, environmental, social and governance. But it was also reflecting the fact that some of what was driving the rise of ESG was activism. You had businesses and financiers and philanthropists who actively wanted to change the world and campaign for reforms. But the vast majority of people were getting involved in it um, really because they wanted to protect themselves. Um, and they wanted to protect themselves against either reputational damage um, when scandals came out or against regulatory risks or simply against the dangers that societal attitudes have changed so fast that if they didn't uphold ESG values, they might lose their clients, their customers, their investors, even their employees. And so ESG was moving into the world of risk management. And some people might say, well, that makes ESG completely pointless and worthless. Um, and it's all hypocritical and corporate, you know, BS or PR spin. Or you could say, actually, it's a kind of a triumph for the original activist because I've covered real life revolutions earlier on in my career. And I know that they succeed not when a tiny minority of activists are screaming, but when the silent majority feels that it's more risky to oppose change than just to get swept along with it. Um, and that was kind of the tipping point we started to reach around 2018, 2019, um, and was the reason why the ESG sector was exploding. And the fact that the zeitgeist has shifted is in some ways a triumph for the activists, but it also shows that it's a field that no one can really ignore, including journalists. Fascinating. So what made you, you, you started off by studying wedding rituals in a tragic village. That's where you did your PhD. What, what made you decide to study anthropology? And what had you, is that what you'd wanted to do as a child when you thought about, you know, what you would do when you grew up? I've never been one of those people, let alone kids, who had a clear vision of where they were going to go in life, to be honest. Um, and, you know, as a child, I had this hunger to go and travel and explore and es escape and see the world. Um, it was probably reflected partly by the fact that my family came from a classic 
sort of British colonial background where bits of my family had been posted all over the world, you know, 50 years ago. Mm. So folk memories of travel. Um, but I actually grew up in a pretty humdrum London suburb. Um, another factor which made me interested in anthropology was that my own family had, had you know, with my mother and father, came from very different um, points of class structure within the social classes in the UK. So I grew up having to navigate different types of social codes, if you like, which again made me very interested in culture and rituals and symbols and things like that. Um, and then when I was 18, I went off and spent a year of my life um, working as a volunteer in Pakistan and got exposed to very different cultures. So it became fascinated by the idea of studying culture, going around the world, looking at cultures. Um, went to college to do that, um, spent a lot of time, as I say, in Pakistan, and then in Tibet um, doing a research project. Um, and then, to be honest, when it came to graduation, you know, I didn't seem to be terribly employable. And I had this wanderlust. So I thought, I'll do a PhD in anthropology because it enables me to go out and see the world and have adventure and explore and try and understand this weird thing called culture um, and hopefully still end up with a degree on my CV. So that's what I did. And as it happened, while I was out in Tajikistan, I began to write some freelance pieces. Um, and then the Soviet Union collapsed. And suddenly an opportunity arose to become a freelance reporter writing about these two events. And I grabbed it, thinking that would be a short-term work experience stint and ended up loving it. At the end of the day, journalism like anthropology is all about telling people about other people so mm. that we can understand others better and understand ourselves. Your uh, anthropovision starts with a conversation in a hotel room in Tajikistan in 1992 during the Civil War. And you'd been sent there by the FT to cover the Civil War because you spoke Tajik. I mean, everybody, most journalists kind of regard frontline reporting of that kind, war reporting, essentially as the most glamorous, but obviously the most dangerous form of reporting. What was it like to go from that onto the financial side of things? Well, I have to be honest and say that, you know, for a period of my life, I was intoxicated by the sense of adventure and drama of war reporting. But, you know, war reporting is brutal, bloody, um, soul-destroying, frankly. Mm. Um, and, you know, I went, started off, you know, very much as a foreign correspondent doing this, you know, daring, dramatic stuff, um, you know, that fulfills everyone's fantasies or image about, you know, anthropologists being like Indiana Jones. I went back to the FT because the FT was the outlet I was freelancing for. Um, and they said to me, well, listen, you know, if you want to join the FT, great, but you need to come back and know something about finance and economics because guess what? We're called the Financial Times. Um, so I went back to the FT in London and was put onto the economics um, desk, the department writing about economies, um, onto probably the least glamorous corner of it, which was the money markets column. And I thought, oh God, how boring. You know, I'll stick here for a bit um, and learn the lingo and then go back and do something more important, like writing about small wars. And I spent the first you know, couple of months in a state of rebellion and then suddenly woke up one day and realized two things. Firstly, that most of my grumpiness was really um, driven by fear because I didn't speak the language of economics. You know, I spoke Tajik, but not economics. So I thought, well, I just got to learn the language. It's like a new kind of cultural village I need to get embedded into. And then I realized that actually 
the way that money goes around the world is incredibly important. Um, it's a bit like the blood system in the human body. If you ignore it, you don't really understand anything. And so I thought, I really need to kind of get to grips with how money goes around the world. But then I also realized that if you just look at the world in terms of how money goes around it, um, which is what most economists and financiers do, you don't really understand anything either. You have to both understand how the bloodstream works and understand how, say, the bones and the skin and the hair, um, you know, operate too. So I thought, well, okay, if I can try and combine a knowledge of finance and economics and how the money goes around the world with a sense of cultural setting, um, that could be a really powerful set of tools. So I had a vague plan to try and set out and do that. Had no idea it would later lead me to the great financial crisis and things like that. But that's really been the guiding principle in much of my life. That's absolutely fascinating. You've talked and written quite a lot about the need for women to understand more about finance and economics, because obviously power lies where the money lies. What advice would you give? I mean, most people are not going to have the kind of crash course you had at the FT. What advice would you give to people and women in particular? Well, people generally actually listening to this about how to educate themselves more about how money flows. Um, I'll give you three pieces of advice. Firstly, recognize that money is power and men are very good historically at monopolizing power and that if you want to have power or even just make sure that you're not too powerless, you need to understand money. That's point one. Um, I've got a great friend, Marin Somerset Webb, who's written a great book called um, Love Is Not Love just pointing this out that, you know, women often are culturally trained to just sort of take themselves out of the conversation and they shouldn't. Yeah. Secondly, realize that learning the language of economics is a bit like learning French um, or whatever other language you might have studied for your GCSEs. You know, you just got to put a wet towel over your head, take a deep breath and start learning the words and then go and put yourself into environments where people speak it. Um, it's not impossible. Um, and then thirdly, I'd say, you know, once you've basically realized that money matters, once you've realized that um, essentially you can learn that language, go forth and deploy it and help other women along the way. Hmm. And what would you say has been the most fulfilling part of your career or moment in your career so far? What are you proudest of? Um, gosh, I'm proud of the great financial crisis and how I saw that um, coming to some degree. I didn't predict the whole magnitude of it, but I certainly saw some of the problems that were bubbling earlier. Um, I'm proud in a way of having been one of the few journalists who called out the issues around the 2016 election and pointed out that there was a good chance that Donald Trump could win. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm proud of team that I and others built at the Financial Times to cover ESG. Um, we're called Moral Money and we've been up and running now for two and a half years. Um, and, you know, it wasn't easy to get the team created at all. Um, we've won a couple of big awards in those two years. Mm -hmm. We feel like we've moved the needle a bit in terms of drawing attention to what's happening in climate change and the need for business and finance to respond. So if I was to look at my stories, I'd probably say that I'm most proud of that at the moment. Um, but I guess the bigger question or the bigger issue really is that I hope I have 
help to inspire journalists to think about social silence um, and to recognize that quite often the stories that really matter are not the ones that are most obviously on the front page. Mm. And you had to make sort of presumably a, a, another sort of anthropological leap when you moved to New York. When, when did you move? Um, it's a bit complicated because I moved to New York first time round in 2010. Um, and then in 2012, I had to go back for family reasons. And then I came back here again in 2014. And absolutely, New York has been a whole new cultural experience. Um, in some ways, harder to navigate because you have the illusion of the same language, you mm. know, that old cliche about, you know, divided by common language. Um, but, you know, that's been a whole new cultural dimension. Yes. And and do you have a preference or you're not going to say on the podcast? <laughs> I'm very, very happy talking about it because the reality is that, you know, I absolutely love the UK and I love America and I wish I could combine the best of both worlds and take away the worst of both worlds. Mm. But of course, both sides of the same coin or different sides of the same coin. Um, what I love about America is the old cliche about um, being a place for reinvention and the go-getting entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it is amazing um, as a middle-aged woman um, coming over here, I just realized that actually, you know, you really can reinvent yourself. You really can restart. Um, there is a tremendous sense of like, you've got a great idea. You go hustle, you go girl, you go give it a go. And you don't have the tall poppy syndrome where everyone's going, oh, gosh, look at her. She's getting a bit too big for her boots. You know, it's more like literally you go girl. And then pull up other people with you. And I love that. Um, I do love the fact that New York is an extraordinarily dynamic place. It's a bit like a sort of chemistry experiment um, with a test tube where you've taken molecules from all over the world and often the most um, hustling, go-getting, ambitious molecules. And you shove them together in a small space, apply pressure, and then see how they interact and create new compounds. And that's a bit what New York is like. Um, the flip side, though, is that it's exhausting, aggressive, um, you know, tough place. Um, you know, many parts of New York and American culture can feel pretty venal. It can be money obsessed. Um, and, you know, it can lack the sense of self-deprecating humor that you have in the UK or the sense of commonality of spirit, um, which often makes the UK and British culture um, so attractive. That's so fascinating. And I'm, I'm just thinking as you speak about how many of us, particularly women, are almost allergic to the hustling side of things. We, we were brought up to believe it was bad manners, you know, even so for, for some, I'm, I'm slightly older than you, you know, for someone of my, I was absolutely brought up to believe you should never ever promote yourself, you shouldn't put yourself forward, you should wait to be kind of uh, called out and perhaps dragged up some hierarchy in spite of yourself, which is what might happen to my father in the civil service. And um, this whole idea of sort of marketing and self-promotion, I think many of us find very difficult. Have you found it easier to, to do that in New York or have you learned more about how to do that? I know clearly you, you have a, a very big job and you, you know you don't have to do that in your job, but sort of more broadly, I've definitely learned a lot by being in New York and it's changed me um, and changed me probably for both the good and some of my um, British friends would say sometimes the worst because I can be a bit abrasive and, you know, by British standards, I can irritate people in Britain. 
Um, I remember a very dear friend of mine once telling me um, when she'd been moaning to me about her problems in her career and I'd gone into classic New York mode, which is to offer solutions and try to find ways to move forward in a proactive way. I kept saying, well, have you tried this? You know, I could introduce you to so-and-so. Have you thought about this? And he just turned around to me and said, you've gone all American. You keep trying to do stuff. And I went, duh. It's like, why else would you moan? And she went, well, you know, it's because I just wanted to get off my chest. Um, you know, so that's the unpleasant side of New York that, you know, but um, I do think there's something very fundamental, which is that um, for me personally, being in New York gives me license to feel as a woman in their originally 40s, now 50s, that I don't have to just sit here and accept my position and status and what I've been given. I, can, I do have a right to go out and hustle. Um, I don't have to apologize every five minutes, although I still tend to, um, but I'm getting better on that. And that you can reinvent yourself at any age. And one of the things I really notice about the difference between New York and London, um, and admittedly, this is a story of elites in very rarefied, privileged circumstances, is that in London and many parts of the UK, people hit the age of 50, 55 and start to assume that they're going to if not retire pretty quickly, but they're kind of in maintenance mode. Um, and they're not talking about creating, you know, new companies, new careers, new projects, you know, going out and hustling, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's right. Maybe no one should hustle in their middle age and they should basically accept that, you know, that is a graceful moment to retire. But you know, what I noticed in New York is that people in their 60s and 70s are saying, you know, I want to create X, Y, and Z, a company, an idea, a book, a project, you know, and I sat around a dinner table soon after I arrived in New York um, and I was in my mid to late 40s then. And it suddenly hit me that if I wanted, I could have 30 or 40 more years of my life left to create careers in rather than the sort of 10 years I'd been sort of working with. And that felt very liberating. Another story I'll say is that, you know, um, when I came to New York, you know, I had separated sadly from the father of my children and I'd go to dinner parties in London and the other couples around the table would look at me and go, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's so difficult. Oh, I'm so sad. And there'd be a long pause. And in New York, what would happen is that people would go, oh, I'm so sorry. But hey, I know a great guy I can set you up with tomorrow. <laughs> and it's the art of the deal. It's the people trying to hustle, which is both good and bad. Fantastic. Sounds great to me. It's very interesting because last night I had dinner with a friend who's a lawyer and she's a partner in a law firm. And we were having this conversation about being, um, you know, a 50 something woman. And uh, I certainly felt I was 49 when I uh, was made redundant from the indie and thought, well, OK, that's those are my journalism years behind me, because in this country, if you're over 50 and you're a woman, your chance of getting a job as a journalist are pretty slender. And she was saying that she felt that she was now feeling some sexism and ageism in her workplace. For people in this country, which is obviously a different culture, what advice would you offer to people who are feeling that and, you know, maybe stuck in their work and, and wanting to look for new opportunities, but not surrounded by the kind of dynamism you're, you're talking about? Well, I don't mean to be naive and pat um, because I know how difficult it is. You know, in the American media world, you know, in some ways it is easier because, you know, you've got people like Andrea Mitchell or Leslie Stahl, you know, on the televisions, you know, who are in their 70s. Um, you know, we don't have that in the UK. 
Um, the only person we had when I was growing up who looked over the age of 30 was you know, Angela Rippon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, cynical, it's because guess what? All these American women get you know, amazing plastic surgery. Um, but, you know, um, that it makes it easier. Um, what I'd say is simply recognize that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and hustling. You don't need to apologize every five minutes. Hold your head high, keep your nerve. Um, look for arenas and corners of the world which are not crowded. They're often the least glamorous areas of the world, but they often have the big opportunities. Um, you know, try to jump out of your fishbowl and see different opportunities and imagine different opportunities. Um, and also remember a wonderful phrase once uttered by Sheryl Sandberg, which is that, you know, life isn't about career ladders anymore. We're living in jungle gyms. You know, you go up and down and round the corner and sideways. And in many ways, that's much more in tune with 21st century working. Very interesting. And you've had, you know, certainly from what looks from the outside, like a hugely successful career and a consistent employer for a long time. Have you had any really tough times in your career? I've had some massively, massively tough times. And one of the um, things I often try to communicate to younger journalists is that you know, it's very easy to look at women who seem outwardly successful and assume it's been a sort of upward steady slope on the chart, when in fact it's really more like a sort of jagged zigzags. You know, and I've had some ex- incredibly big knockbacks, um, you know, partly for family reasons. You know, I really, I mean, I had to give up, give up working, about, you know, for about the best part of a year for family reasons. I've had to change my plans dramatically for family reasons. Um, you know, I've made some big mistakes, definitely made some very big mistakes. Um, but I guess two things I'll say is one is that, you know, the issue about mistakes and, you know, up, upturns or upheavals happening is not really that they happen, it's how you respond to them. Mm. Second thing is when I've been forced to suddenly change my plans for family reasons or unexpected reasons, um, it's usually tossed me into something which I didn't think I wanted to go into, but I've often found generated interesting new ideas. So one of the reasons I started writing about credit derivatives back in 2004 and five was because I'd applied for three other higher status jobs um, and been turned down. Mm. And running the post of what was then called the head of the capital markets team at the FT was not my first choice. It wasn't the high status job at all. Um, you know, I'd wanted to be economics editor and banking editor, and I hadn't got the jobs. But when I got this capital markets editor job instead, you know, I found it later led into a much more fruitful landscape. Mm. And and thank you for your honesty there, Gillian. And and what has enabled you, do you think, to cope with those blows? They can feel quite debilitating in a career context, and particularly when you feel that, and I've no idea if this was the case in, in your situation, but I think many of us have had moments when we feel that we've been passed over for someone who actually was not even any better than we are. Um, how how sort of psychologically and emotionally and practically did you cope with those situations or would you suggest that people cope with those situations? Well, I'd be what probably many women did. I sort of went and wailed at my friends with a large bottle of wine. <laughs> um, you know, I tried to be the little engine that could and just keep going. Mm. Um, part of me, which has you know, always been quite tenacious and bloody minded and determined to sort of show people that, you know, I could do things. Um, I th- I'm so happy that I grew up in an English context with the most amazing, lovely, warm, lovely mother, but a mother who came from a family where girls weren't expected to do anything. 
mm. um, at all after the age of you know um, 16 or 17 other than you know probably try and get married and things um, so unlike today's girls I didn't grow up with sky high expectations of what I should achieve um, the very fact I managed to get A-levels and get to college was seen as an you know, extraordinary victory. And the very fact I got a job was pretty amazing. Um, so I always had this feeling, let me just try and see what I could do. Um, and, um, you know, so I think that helped. The other thing, to be brutally honest, is that um, I got tossed into a situation um, in my sort of early 40s where it suddenly and abruptly and quite unexpectedly became clear to me that I was going to have to earn my financial keep and I couldn't rely on other people and you know necessity is the mother of invention yeah. so any women in their 40s who sort of wind down their careers because they're able to if they have financial security you know it was ripped away from me and so I had to work and that can be a very powerful motivator um, I'm often reminded of Madeleine Albright who um, said that you know she wouldn't have had her amazing career which ended up making her US Secretary of State unless she'd suddenly been tossed into a situation where she had to very suddenly earn her keep and that forced her to innovate. So sometimes mm. adversity can be incredibly um, powerful as a motivator. Absolutely. And what about pay rises? Have you, I mean, I had um, a, a time at the independent when I realized I, I was doing the lead column on a Wednesday and a, a full page on a Saturday. And I discovered that all the male columnists were earning much much more than me and what helped helped me was I spoke to the the late lovely Deborah Orr who had been doing that slot before me and I found out what she had been paid she very kindly told me and when they offered me considerably less I hung on until they offered me what she had been paid um, unfortunately at that point the editor himself got fired so I never got it and then I got fired so it was but 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 at least for you know I did kind of insist have where have you been on the kind of asking for money front I'm pretty rubbished it it's one of the areas where <laughs> I'm still um, English not American um, you know I'm trying to absorb some lessons from America um, you know here in America you have people like Mika Brzezinski who's a well-known breakfast um, television host who's written books about, you know, know your value. Um, you know, you go out and hustle and demand money. And I'll be honest, you know, um, I'm work in progress. I still find that tough. Um, but transparency is one way to do it. Um, talking to other women is another way to do it. Um, there's all kinds of techniques you can use, which I've been told to sound more assertive. Um, one of the best ones I learned about what to do on the phone is to stand up if you have a hard phone conversation to make because more air will go into your lungs. And as a woman, that matters because it means you sound less squeaky. Um, so there's ways to do it, but it's not easy. I wouldn't pretend to have the answers. And I guess the key point I'm trying to make is that one of the reasons I try and tell young journalists, particularly female journalists, you know, that my life has been a series of zigzags and sometimes big downward zags is because, you know, we're all work in progress. Um, none of us can expect to be, you know, 100% successful, 100% the finished article. Um, you know, if you manage to get 40%, you're doing well. Absolutely. Um, the standing up on the phone reminded me of the power pose. And do you remember that photo of Sajid Javid? I think it was doing the power pose on the steps of 11 Downing Street, which is very embarrassing. So you're meant to do it privately, aren't you? <laughs> These things, you come across the power pose from the, what's her name? A Amy something or other, the TED talker. You know what I'm talking about? Body language. Body language matters. Again, yeah. Take it. 
um, my own daughters once watched a few speeches I'd given and pointed out that I kept flapping my hands and kept sticking my foot up in the air, bizarrely. <laughs> and that took away from my credibility. So <laughs> friend, look at your body language and tell you honestly what they think. It's quite useful. Very, very good. So if you were to give a, a piece of advice to anybody starting off in their career now, um, perhaps not even sure what they should do, what would be your kind of key piece of advice to get them going? Recognise that you're not going to know exactly what you want to do in life. Um, you can't create a career ladder or clear-cut plan um, driven by GPS. And that's no bad thing, because guess what? The world's changing dramatically. What's the point of having GPS if the landscape around you and the terrain is shifting um, and all the mountains and things are moving around. Um, secondly, I'd say try to follow something that really excites and interests you at least part of the time, but also recognize you need to get practical and pay the bills. Um, and, you know, in my case, sure, I could have spent my whole life writing about small wars or Tajik anthropology, but it wouldn't have taken me into a mainstream secure area of journalism. Um, try looking to exploit the cracks in the system and the parts of the world that are less clearly glamorous and covered. I mean, the high profile, high status areas are often very crowded in career terms. Try looking for something else. Try and create really good networks of support um, amongst other people. Um, you know, I'm a great believer in karma that, you know, you get back what you put in, even if it takes several years. So being generous in spirit and helping others is really, really crucial. Um, and last but not least, you know, recognize that you can either look at the glass being half full or half empty. So you might as well celebrate it being half full and um, try to be cheerful about that as best you can. Doesn't mean you shouldn't struggle and strive, but, you know, half full is better than empty. Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Gillian Tett, for being so generous with your time. It's been a huge pleasure to, to, to speak to you. And thank you and congratulations on reinventing yourself um, with the podcast. Um, it's quite a feat and it's certainly something which is very valuable. So thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this conversation, do subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories. And do please share, rate it and or leave a review. For tips, wisdom and advice about The Art of Work, do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter. And do join me next week.